Thank you, Pastor Dennis. And uh, greetings, all. So glad to have you together as we open up the Word of God. If you're a first-time guest, we are honored to have you. My name is Josh, and it's my joy to be lead pastor. Pastor Dennis serves as our pastor of community and care. And then, of course, you're going to get to meet every single uh, other member of our church flock. We do have a few out today, I think, because of the holiday and some physical things going on. So let's remember them in prayer. But we did feel led that even though it's Labor Day weekend, we need, we need to start that next series on a book of the Bible. It's what we like to do every school year. When we start a new, a new fall season, we start a book of the Bible that we are going to study verse by verse. We're going to go through it, try to understand it. Let, let the Word change our heart and change us and the way that we live so that we'll look more like Christ, that we'll love God and that we'll love others. And as Pastor Dennis said, we are centered on the Word. So it's not my opinion I want to share with you today. It's, it's the Word of God. I'll need to share some introduction and, and some details about this book that will help you understand its context a little bit better. But discipleship is a process where you can only be changed if God is regularly and, and, and in a fresh way every day speaking truth into your life. I don't change myself. I don't have the power to change myself. We just went through a series of spiritual warfare and the armor of God and and every weapon that we've been given in the fight, it's a gift from God. It's what we have in Christ. Christ is the one who changes us. And yet, discipleship is an incredible process. For someone who meets Jesus, believes in him, bows the knee, repents, and puts their faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a disciple. And now, to be a disciple, if you were in Jesus' day, it meant you actually walk with the Savior. You hear from him. You learn of him. You do what he does. You help serve in the way that he serves and he reaches people. So faith involves both hearing and doing. If you have one but not the other, you don't have a disciple who's being fully used of God. To be a fully involved disciple means we hear the word of God and we do it. And another thing about discipleship is it requires other people to be involved as well. Because no one ever followed Jesus alone. When you follow Jesus, you end up walking alongside other brothers and sisters, right? Other disciples. Jesus called the twelve to follow him most closely. There were also other disciples, women and some of the multitudes that followed from a distance. You know, they still had to take care of the kids at home or they still had work to do. But they were still actively listening to the voice of Jesus and following him and obeying him. So we're committed. We want to know the word and we want to live the word because we are disciples of Jesus. And we're going to go to a small letter in the back of the Bible. It's the book of James. It's about 20 books into the New Testament or seven books from the end. If you're working your way back that way, sandwiched between Hebrews and 1 Peter, you are going to find this small book called James. You could read it in 20 minutes. That's, that's all it would take. Maybe 25 if you're a slow reader. But make no mistake about it. When we read James, you are going to be challenged. This is a powerful book, as all of the books of the Bible are, is the living word of God. But here's just one example, one of my favorite verses from James. James 1.22, where the author says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, because you're deceiving yourself. If you think that's what discipleship is, you're just obtaining information, but there's no heart change or life change, you're deceiving yourself. You're not fooling Jesus, you're fooling yourself. 
And just right there, there's an example where James makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it when our toes get stepped on or when we get called to an account for, does your life match up with the example of Christ? If you're a follower of Christ, you're not going to be perfect like Jesus. You're not going to do everything like Jesus. But you will look more and more like Jesus if you're spending time with him, right? The more you spend with someone, the more they rub off on you. That's how relationships work. That's certainly how our spiritual relationship works. And one commentator said this, James makes us uncomfortable because he emphasizes right living as well as right believing. And if there ever was a, a, a time in Christian history when, at least in the Western church, we emphasize the personal uh, decision to follow Jesus, this is your individual faith walk, yes, that is true, but unfortunately our culture uh, reads through a Western mindset and we remove the communal aspect of the Christian faith. See, to be a follower of Jesus in his era means you just knew there, there is a community. There are other people following Jesus or there is a, a temple to go and worship at. Or when the churches started meeting in homes because of, of how the, the gospel went forward, you gather. You meet, you disciple one another, you receive instruction from one another. It's not just you and Jesus, because we need other people to help us as well. We grow together. And James is telling us, that's the author, we'll learn more about him in a minute. If you could sum up, why does he feel the need to write this letter? He's telling these Christians, these early Jewish believers, you need to mind the gap. What does that mean? Mind the gap. We all have this gap. In our spiritual journey, remove this. It's kind of there. Uh, we all have this gap in our spiritual journey between what we say we believe. These are our convictions. Yep, I'm a Christian, and what we do. We all have that gap. <coughs> Even the most spiritually mature among us, not one of us lives a hundred percent consistently with what we would like to say we believe. But does that give us license then to just go and be a raging hypocrite and do the complete opposite of what our Lord is calling us to do? Nope. James says, mind the gap. Look at where you are in your walk. See what is inconsistent with Jesus and repent and walk more closely with him. Another way you can view this gap is uh, what's the difference between what you do for this one hour in your Sunday morning worship service and what do you do the rest of the week? For a lot of American Christians, that gap is the size of the Grand Canyon. Uh, your, your neighbors would not recognize the person you are during that one hour on Sunday morning, and that's the reason that a lot of people don't have any interest in coming to our churches, because that's not the real you. You're putting on a show. Mind the gap. And just like children need from time to time, we need those reminders. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. One commentator named Stephen Davies said that James, this author, he's like, he's like a guest you invite into your house and let him have a seat in the living room. You clean the living room. Everything's good there. And, and that's kind of where the social interaction happens. But then James goes a step further and he starts going through your bathroom cabinet. <laughs> looking through there. He starts looking under the sofa or he opens up some closets he goes in your kitchen cupboards and he's peering to the back. Who is this guy? And why does he feel the need to pry into every part of my life? 
Well, it's a humorous illustration, but I think it's a good example of, of how do we view our walk with Jesus? Is he really Lord over every part of my life? Does he really have the right to tell me how to speak and how to relate to others and what to do with my body and what to do with my paycheck? Jesus? He, he cares what I do with everything that belongs to me? Yes. And here we have a powerful word that will help us mind the gap to see how we grow to be more like Jesus. Wasn't it Jesus who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. You can't follow me and stay where you are. We want to try to, to stretch. No, you've got to leave your desires and your wants to follow me, and I will change that in your heart. So, Lord, as we, as we come to your word, help us now to see what you want us to see. Help us to open up every closet of our heart, any bad habit we've held onto, any, any behavior modification that we've tried to do in our own strength but not allowed you to reign in us. Lord, please change us by your grace. We're so grateful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point this morning, we're going to limit it to one verse. We can manage one verse, right? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's it. That's all we're going to try to take a bite out of today. But what James is going to, to tell us right there in that first verse is that we need to remember who we are and why we're here. Okay? Who we are and why we're here. So, just a little bit of background on the author, which will help you understand where he's coming from and why we care, what James says. Uh, so he just identifies himself as James, which right there in and of itself gives us a lot of clues as to the identity of the author. Because James was actually a common name in, in first century uh, Palestine. It's actually in, in, uh, in the Hebrew, it would be you know, Jacob. Basically, so Jacob, we, we transliterate that to, to James. It's my middle name, actually. James, don't, don't call me Jim. Just, just call me Josh. That'll be fine. Um, so, but who would know his audience well enough that he doesn't have to say James of, and then put an identifying town, or a family that he's a part of, or here's how we know each other. And so when that letter gets to you, you know what James is. is hard. So this needs to be a pretty well-known guy in the Christian church that he could just identify himself as James and they all know, okay, well, it's this James. So there's three possible options uh, from those who followed closely with Jesus or who knew Jesus. The third option, I'm gonna go in order of least likely to likely. So the third option is James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' closest followers. But that James was killed by Herod very early on in the church age in Acts 12. We're told very little about him, and it seems like his, his life is snuffed out when the rest of the church gets going. So he was one of those early martyrs. So it, it appears that that happened before this book was written, so it's most likely not him. And besides, I don't think he was as well known as the other disciples, so I think that rules him out as well. The second option would be the James the son of Alphaeus, another one of the twelve. But here's the thing. We know nothing about James the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the quietest disciples in the group. We're not given 
any other details about him other than he's the son of Alpheus? So if it was James the son of Alpheus, wouldn't you probably say, I'm James the, the son of Alpheus? We, we really, I mean, he fades off in Christian history. We don't even know what ends up happening to him. Most likely gave his life for Jesus somewhere. The first option, and I think was the best option, and most historians agree, that this was James, Jesus's half-brother. Because Jesus had siblings from Mary and Joseph. Jesus, his father was God. Mary was a virgin. She was his mother. But scripture says clearly, after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary came together as a husband and wife. And we're told in several instances that Jesus had siblings. Uh, let's see here. Okay, Mark 6, 3. Galatians 1.19, we're told that Jesus actually had four brothers and two sisters. James was one of them. And then we're told specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to 500 brethren at one time, and then he also appeared to James, his brother. It has to be his brother. Because he already said he appeared to the twelve. So why would he single out? It's because this is James that the early church knew. This is the half-brother of Jesus. That's, it's incredible. But the brother of Jesus becomes one of his disciples and followers. His life is changed because he meets the resurrected, risen Lord. And just some other info about James and why he was so well-known to his audience. James was the lead elder, the lead pastor, over the church at Jerusalem, which was made up of primarily Jews, right? When, when Pentecost happened, 3,000 people repented and put their faith in Jesus. They were primarily Jews there for the feast. So James is the lead pastor of this church, ministering to the Jews. But then the persecution hits. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Herod persecutes the church. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, Saul, before he gave his life to Jesus, he persecuted them mercilessly. So what did the Jews start to do? The Jewish believers start to spread out around the Mediterranean region, outside of Palestine. And that, that there's a term specifically used for those believing Jews who were once in Israel but now have scattered. That term is known as the dispersion, which you find there in James 1.1. The audience, the, the dispersion, the dispersed ones. And we'll learn more about them in a minute. So James knows them. He's very familiar with them. It makes sense that he would say, hey, it's just James. And he gets into the letter. They all know him. They know his voice very well. And if you're wondering, how do we know this is his writing style? How do we know it's that James? We actually have a speech from James recorded in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council where there's a big discussion do we require believers to get circumcised in order to be a part of God's family? Is it faith plus that extra work? Or is it just by grace through faith? And it's not really a debate. It's more of an opportunity for clarification. And James speaks up and he says, Brothers, we know that the gospel was free and freely given to us. So we can't add to that. We take Jesus' words at face value. And he speaks just succinctly. He says greetings in that kind of that same, just simple place. So we're very confident 
Now this is the word of God. This is the half-brother of Jesus who saw the resurrected Christ, and his word is trustworthy and confirmed. I've had a couple people ask me lately, how do we know if something is not the word of God? And how do we know which, which books are included and, and why they're right? Well, let me give you an example of a book that is not included in the word of God and is clearly a forgery. That would be the Gospel of Thomas. So anyone ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Okay, so the Gospel of Thomas was supposedly written by Thomas, one of the disciples. But by its content matter alone, you can clearly tell this is not accurate. This is not an accurate depiction of Jesus. It does not contain truth. I'll give you an example. It says, when Jesus was a kid, there were other kids that were mean to him or bullied him, and Jesus killed them. Boom. Killed them dead. And then when the parents complained, oh my goodness, how could you do that to our child? You're a terrible child. Jesus struck them with blindness. Punished the parents too. Punished the kids, punished the parents. And there's several instances where he supposedly killed somebody. Does that connect with any other book of the Bible that we have? Jesus just flies off the cuff in a rage. No. He was perfect. That actually sounds more like a horror movie. You know, like what happens when someone gets a superpower and they don't have the character to match it up? You've seen those videos on, on Prime Video. That sounds like what I would do if I had that kind of power. I, I'm, I'm vindictive sometimes. That's not Jesus. It's not consistent. There's historical errors. We reject it. And over time, the church confirms and compiles. These are the proven words of God. We know, we hear, and we see the consistency in the word. So that aside, I hope you enjoy that, that outline that we've given you that will help you study James for yourself. This is your walk with Jesus. We're coming alongside you. We're feeding you the word, but don't let it stop on Sunday morning. Keep pressing into Christ. Remember who we are and why we're here. Now, let's get into the meat. Okay, so we need to remember who we are. And James gives us a very clear example of that. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? James identifies himself not as the head pastor of the church at Jerusalem. I am the ruling elder. I am the half-brother of Jesus. You know, so I'm kind of a celebrity by blood, you know, you could say. He doesn't lean on that. He just says, I'm a servant. I'm nothing more. I'm nothing less. At the end of the day, I bow at the feet of Jesus just like you all. We're brothers and sisters. That's what the church is. It's not some kind of hierarchy where certain people have control over other people. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, it is true. We do have elders that are qualified by their mature walk with Christ, and they exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And over time, the church tests that and affirms that, and they see a track record of maturity and leadership, and, and they call those, those men to eldership. So... That's not saying his role is not important, but that's not what he rests his head on at night when he goes to sleep. He rests his head on the fact that I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's done to me. That word servant is from the Greek doulos. It actually means bound. Bound. So he's saying I'm bound to God like a slave. You can call me a slave of Jesus, and I'd be okay with that. 
because he's the best master I've ever met. <laughs> in fact, the way that the, the sentence is constructed in the Greek, you could, you could break it up with commas saying James. Oh, wait. You're, you're looking for left or right here. James, of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, a servant. So I'm a servant of God the Father. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, they are one. <laughs> one God. Both worthy of worship, both worthy of service. So it's not like I serve God and, and oh, Jesus kind of sets a moral example for us, but he's just a human like you and me. No, he's equating Jesus with God. I serve Jesus. And to know that you serve Jesus means you serve the living God who made you and all things in this world. It's the only time in the New Testament that this particular phrase is used, just like that. It's unique to James. A little, little tip for you there. So the Messiah, that's Jesus. He's the Lord. He's clearly equal with God. He's worthy of worship and service, and I'm, I'm bowing the knee to him. But don't you find it interesting that the brother of Jesus, who grew up with him, probably wrestled him, had some disagreements with him, although Jesus never sinned. So I wonder what those disagreements looked like. Don't you wonder? When a parent comes into the room and the siblings have been fighting, Joseph and Mary just know Jesus is not the culprit here. So what's going on? I mean, if you're a brother of Jesus, I got to that would get old after a while. You're a perfect brother, right? Then gets old. But I think what I take away from this and what James is saying, a servant of God of Christ Jesus, we are all servants to somebody. We'd like to think that we're not. But that's the lie the evil one is trying to sow into your mind. I am completely autonomous, completely free from any outside influence. Now the scriptures tell us, the word of God tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded our minds. He's blinded the world and the systems and everything in the world belongs to the kingdom of darkness unless it belongs to God. Acts 26, 18, in Paul's testimony, he says that we were turned from the darkness to the light. We have been changed from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We were not born morally neutral. I can choose to do right. I can choose to do wrong with no one influencing me whatsoever. Now we have the seed of sin inside of us. We inherited that from our parents. We inherited that from their parents, and so, back, so on and so forth, all the way back to the first man and woman who chose to rebel against God. We're born slaves. And the lie the evil one wants you to believe is that you are free right now. Do not turn to Jesus because then you become a servant. Stay free. Do what feels good. Live in the moment. Enjoy your flesh. Make sure you, you do what you want with your life. That's why we needed the light of Christ to come. That's why he was born in Bethlehem, to show us the people who thought they were walking in the light are actually walking in darkness. And I've come to show them the way. And he clearly and powerfully broke the chains of sin and death. And by his shedding of his blood on the cross, he makes it possible for the shackles to come off of our hearts. For those who will see and believe he is the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world. 
And then, yes, we turn to him, and he becomes our new master. But he's a good master. He's never told us a lie. He only tells us the truth. He's the one who gave up his life for us. And then he says, follow me. Do you know anyone like that in your life? Who's worth following because they gave their life for you when you were their enemy? Who loves you that much? Only Jesus has ever loved us that much. Wouldn't you rather be his servant than a servant to the evil one who only wants to destroy you? The choice is clear, but you have to see with the eyes of faith. The light of the word of God has to open that path for you, and you have to walk in it by faith. Now, when Christ sets us free, that doesn't mean we can now live however we want. That's another implication. If I'm a servant of God, my life is no longer my own. What does Josh want to do today? What do I want to do with my entire life? And, and what do I want to be written on my, on my tombstone one day? What kind of family do I want to have? I don't have as much control over that anyways, but no, I gave that up to Jesus because he knows best. He sees all and he made me. So Jesus, what powerful plan do you have for me to discover today? It still involves me, but I'm submitting to his leadership. Do you remember the day that you first met Jesus and gave him your heart? For those of you who are believers, do you remember that day? What a joyful day that was. You know you were set free from sin. You felt it. That weight came off your back, off your soul. You were in love with Jesus, all that he did for you. Did he really die for me? Does he love me that much? Is he that gracious and kind? And you said, I'll do anything for him. I'll run through a wall for him. <laughs> you have my life. You can have everything. And, and then you told people about him. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. We were excited. We had joy. But then over time, we tend to lose a little bit of that excitement. And we're not... Dusting off our Bible as often. We're not walking as closely with Jesus. We get caught up in other things. And sooner or later, the gap gets a little bit wider. A little bit wider. And we don't even realize it. But before you know it, I'm just I'm back to where I was doing what I want to do. Oh, that's right. Jesus, my first love. Let's come back to him. Let's give him our all. Let's serve him with all that we are. Not just for an hour on Sunday morning. Not just when it's convenient. Sometimes when it's hard. Do we serve self or do we serve Christ? What, what's a good modern day example to use of that kind of full-hearted devotion? Uh, what about the Swifties? Yeah. Those Taylor Swift fans. Am I right? Yeah. If you don't know anything about Taylor Swift, I'm about to educate you a little bit, okay? So... Probably the leading celebrity and musician right now. Just had her big whirlwind eras tour, and it's still going on around the world. But it's kind of wrapped up in the U.S. for right now. She is so popular and has so many fans. This is, this is all what went on for this show. They had a pre-sale, a flash pre-sale, before the tickets even were fully on sale. This is the pre-sale. Two million dollars sold in one day. The pre-sale. That's a record for those you who are keeping score. Her first show in Glendale, Arizona, there were 69,000 screaming fans there. That's a record for a solo woman act. 
she she broke that record, smashed it. <laughs> uh, they made 1.4 billion dollars in tickets off of all the shows, which uh, you know they had the VIP and behind the scenes and you know probably meet and greets and all that stuff. So 1.4 billion, but five billion total revenue from the whole tour. It actually affected the GDP of our country. Like, who is that popular? The cheapest ticket was $300. And here's the kicker. Everyone went to that show because they wanted to be there. No one forced, well, I mean, maybe there was a dad, you know, going along with his driving his teenage daughter that had to be there, right? But for the most part, People are there and giving up $5 billion gross domestic product because we love T. Smith. We love her songs. She's a great musician. Wow, okay. I didn't know that she changed your life so much, but apparently she has. Now, if you're not a Taylor Swift fan, let college football be your guide. Fans go just as crazy. We were watching college football last night. They paint the body. They show up at the crack of dawn, they get the grill going, they get their drinks on, they're tailgating, they pay a lot of money for the tickets, they hang around afterwards and they sing their songs. All of that and their team might not even win. But it's the experience. We love our team. Does anyone in our society think that's crazy? Well, you love Taylor Swift, yeah, go for it. You, you love your football team, you gotta be supportive. You, you wanna go to that, absolutely. But I love Jesus, and I want to serve him with all that I am. How weird! Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you don't see Jesus, so why should he have any say over my life? I don't know, he's just the Lord overall. He created me. Taylor Swift has not shed one drop of blood for me in her life. Jesus shed it all. So I'm going to willingly, joyfully give him all that I have and more. I'm going to echo his praises for all of eternity. You're not going to have to twist my arm on that one. I love him. Do we view our relationship with him in that way? Who is actually here? Would we count the cost, sell everything, follow him? I think sometimes we, we kind of get lost in this religiosity, but it is supposed to be from the heart. Because we love him, we give him everything. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says in Matthew 28, 19, in the Great Commission, when you make disciples, here's how you make disciples, not just in lecture format or through a, a podcast on Spotify. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, disciples, the way that I poured in you for three years and showed you how to live and, and invested in you and, and showed you my resurrected self and I equipped you for ministry, now I expect you to go and do the exact same with those who have no desire to know me. Show them my love. Show them my grace. Teach them my whole word. And when they have questions, be patient and answer those questions. And when they fail, be patient and gracious with them like I've been patient and gracious with you. But show them how to walk and to mind that gap, to obey me in all things. This is how it is to live in the kingdom of God. So do we know the scriptures like T-Swift fans know her lyrics? Are we that devoted to Jesus? 
And have you fully surrendered every part of your body, your plans, your, your goals, your relationships to Jesus? How can unbelievers see the light of Jesus, Jesus in us? Remember who you are. Here's the last point. We need to remember why we're here. Remember why we're here. So it's James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So the twelve tribes of Israel. Hopefully that's not anything too earth-shattering for you. You should know that there were twelve tri tribes in Israel, God's chosen people. And they lived in Israel. This is the promised land that God gave them. So to have a Jew who lives outside of the promised land was really considered a curse and a problem in the Old Testament. Because God said, to follow me, you dwell in community with me and my people, and you come to my temple, and you follow my word, and, and this land is for you, and I will bless you here. But there's been a change since the cross. There's been persecution. And the believing Jews, those who have followed the risen Lord, they are scattered in the wind. That word diaspora, it means like scattering seed in a field. So it's, it's thrown, the wind takes it, and we hope that, that a good harvest comes from that. So imagine being a Jew. You used to live in God's promised land to your people. You love it, you had your home there. You had this whole temple system that you, know, you could just kind of order your life around and everything was predictable. And then you met Jesus and he said, come and follow me. And now you're kicked out of your home. You don't have access to the temple. And besides, Jesus says, your body is now the temple where the Holy Spirit resides. And, but now you're in a new land. You got to learn new customs, maybe a new language, a new trade. You got to rebuild your house or build a new house over and what are we doing here? Why are we here? That's why James writes this letter. He's not writing it to people who have their act all together. He's writing it to people who are scared, who are confused, and scattered, and trying to start a new season of life, and trying to figure out, if Jesus were here right now, what would I do? How would I live? That's why we need the wisdom of the Word of God. We need James to show us, here's how you walk. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. Here's what wisdom looks like. Here's how we don't treat our brothers and sisters. There's a lot of do's and don'ts, but we're just trying to figure out life after exile. We've been dispersed. But do you think Jesus is in control over all of this? He is the Lord, after all. We serve him. Maybe he has a plan for us after all. I feel like what James is saying here is, hey, 12 tribes, you might be scattered to the wind right now, but Jesus is with you right now. And he's going to work through the scattering and through the hardship to bring about a blessing as only he can. You're going to see through this, through this book, there's a lot of talk about persecution right there in verse, verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Trials? Why would I want trials? Because through trials, people get to see the light of Jesus shine brighter through you. So these dispersed Jews really became a seed for a future harvest, is what one commentator said. I love that. Is my life a seed of the gospel? 
and I'm blown, and I'm, I'm scattered, and I might feel out of place here, but God planted me here. Let's see what he'll grow through me. That perspective changes everything. Some of you, I, I, I know some of the challenges and struggles you've gone through lately, and some of you I don't, but I'm not your personal Lord, Jesus is. And I want to encourage you this morning, he knows what he's doing. And he has you planted here for a reason and a season. Are you walking closely with him so you can discover what that is? Do you want to see God reap a full harvest of fruit, joy, and peace, patience, waiting on God and trusting him? Well, then you can't get blindsided by the fact that we have trials in this life. Don't be surprised. Don't let the unsettledness of this world get your focus off Jesus. Remember, you are here for a purpose in 2023 for a reason. You might be discouraged, but you are watched over. You will be provided for, and God will use you to change this world for the good of others and for the glory of God. So why are we here? What's our motivation? To shine a light. Shine a light for Jesus and to shine brightly. You don't have to be a bright light. <laughs> Jesus is the light source. But are you willing to let him flow through you? That's the question before us today. And I think of our church planting journey. We're about to celebrate one year. You know how hard this first year was? <laughs> really hard. Because good things that matter and last, they're hard. You're going against the grain. You're going against culture. If it was easy to just spring up churches everywhere, that would happen and they would all take and it would all be great. But God scatters seed and he sows seed and he works through that seed over the years to produce a harvest. If we're willing to be patient and see it. So we're celebrating this last year. You better believe me. Yeah, we're going to have barbecue next week. All right, we're going to have the pool there. If you want to go swimming, go swimming. We're going to have tables, sit around, laugh, share some stories, get to know each other. We are celebrating. Because look at what God has done, even in the last year. Starting out from just two families. Comuses and the Comuses. God's brought a church. So whatever trial you're going through, are you willing to trust him with that? Are you willing to let your life be a seed that where you've been dispersed, you're planted and you will bear fruit? No matter what your age is, no matter what your job is, look at the hurricane. Every time a hurricane comes, what's going to happen? It's the end of the world. And yet every time God works through it to bring about good. Right now, there are Baptists sending resources and gospel witnesses and evangelistic encounters to the areas most affected by the hurricane. I know, the news is all talking about President Biden came and visited, and the governor didn't see him, and okay, don't get, don't get lost in the smoke and mirrors. What's actually happening right now is God is working this together for good. He's using his servants who are serving him willingly, being used of God, and people are coming to faith in Christ. Their eternity is being changed forever through a hurricane. It's one example of where God is working. So as we conclude, just a couple of questions for you. As I talk about this relationship with Jesus and walking with him, is that new to you? Is that something that you've never really heard or connected with before that 
Christian is not just a name you take on, it's an identity that you embrace as a follower of Jesus. Jesus is a gracious master. Give him your heart and watch the love that he will shower you with. Ask him to cultivate a deeper love in your heart. I hope you're encouraged remembering who you are and why you're here. So if you came in here wondering, why am I here? And what is God doing? Maybe you can't see it yet, but he's using you to be a light to somebody else. Are you willing to go out this week? Instead of living for self, God, help me live for others. Help me think of others. Help me pray for others. Those who aren't here, yes. Those who aren't here, yes. But the gas attendant, the grocery store worker, the prime, the prime delivery guy that drops off your package. Every single soul here for a reason. Someone you can reach for Christ. But in order to do that, let's mind the gap. Ask God to help us live obedient to him. Watch what he does through you. Let's pray.